listening to the history of Vikings, chances are you've traveled to the Scandinavian countries or have aspirations to travel. With vast mountain landscapes, Scandinavia affords adventurers like me the opportunity to climb and hike. At the time this episode is published, I'll be traveling across Iceland doing exactly that, going on several hikes. Today's sponsor is the Dino Climbing Company. My friends at Dino would love to let you know about their product called Beta, a thermogenic nootropic with a boost of clean energy using 10 simple, all-natural ingredients. Nootropics are supplements that boost your creativity, promote mental clarity, and give you intense focus. Accounting for 20% of your calories burned every day, it's important we supplement our brain, the body's most important organ. The Dino Climbing Company delivers straight from their door to yours. Pay them a visit at thedinocompany.com. Many thanks to the Dino Climbing Company for sponsoring this episode. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today we'll be discussing one of the Icelandic sagas. Erbigja saga, or the saga of the people of Eri, could perhaps be referred to as the saga of the people of Snæfellsnes, as it tells stories of families living across the Snæfellsnes peninsula in western Iceland. Written in the mid-13th century, the saga was composed during a tumultuous time in Icelandic history. It contains innovative skaldic poetry and large amounts of paranormal activity. From witches and zombies to berserker rages, sexuality, magic, and wonders, listen and relax as we unpack the rich story of Erbigja Saga here today on the podcast. I'm so pleased to be joined by returning guest Dr. Torfi Tolinius, Professor of Medieval Icelandic Studies at the University of Iceland. Dr. Tolinius, thank you so much for joining me today. Always a pleasure, Noah. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, before we get into the meat of Erbigja Saga, could you tell us about the name of the saga and also about its setting, the Snæfellsnes Peninsula? Okay, first, uh, the title is something that uh, you find in rather late manuscripts, so it's not, we don't know whether whoever composed it uh, had this title in uh, mind when, uh, when he, uh, he, he, he composed the saga. It's, uh, but because it's the, in, in one of the manuscripts, it is said this is the saga of the people of Sosnes, Altafjörður, and Eiri. And these are three different parts of the northern coast of the Snæfellsnes Peninsula, and uh, three different groups of uh, people, and uh, which uh, all settle this area. And uh, the saga is about the different conflicts and goings on uh, between the n- not 
as so much the settlers, though it 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 is part of it, but mainly their descendants, and especially down to the third or fourth generation. That is to say, the generation which is alive in the period immediately preceding the conversion to Christianity in the year thousand. So, in many ways, though it is probably based on a lot of oral tales of ancestors of great-grandfather or of uh, ancestors going back six or seven generations, it's also uh, to some extent what could be the equivalent of what we could, of what we, we would call today a historical novel. That is to say, the plot, the uh, the characterization of, of the people and so on are, uh, are to a large extent uh, probably derived from the author's imagination. Now, this area of, uh, of Snifelsnes is the northern part of Snif the northern coast of Snifelsnes is a very interesting area. I, I gather that you were there just a few days ago, Noah, and so you've seen its beauty. It's uh, in some ways it's Iceland in a nutshell. It has volcanoes, it has glaciers, it has the different types of uh, coasts, different types of bird life, and so on. And it's also so it, it's. Uh, it's the coast that opens up to the fjord called the Breda Fjordur, which has a myriad of islands. So in many ways, this area of Iceland was very kind of uh, uh, very fertile or uh, or a good place to live, uh, given the economy and the technology of the Viking Age and the early Middle Ages. And uh, But what the story tells us, Erbikasa, is about how it came, this area came to be settled. And uh, kind of the main character is uh, in this early part is uh, Thorolvur Mostrarskek, a Norwegian, a temple uh, owner in Norway, in southern, <clears throat> on the <a, clears throat> uh, south, south, southwestern coast of Norway. He uh, gives help to uh, another uh, Norwegian nobleman. Björnin uh, Östreini, who has uh, been in, uh, has had trouble with uh, Harald Fairhair, the king of Norway, who is uniting Norway under his rule. And he uh, shelters, uh, Thorolver shelters uh, Björn while he's uh, hiding from the king. And both men have to, uh, to move. Björn first goes to the Hebrides and, uh, and uh, the Orkney, that area, while Thorolver sails out all the way to Iceland, and uh, we have this uh, wonderful tale of how he throws out his uh, the uh, the pillars of his high seat, and how a mysterious current takes them all the way to this peninsula on the northern coast of uh, of uh, Snæfellsnes, which is called Thorsnes, the peninsula of Thor, and. Uh, this is the name that Thor Olver gives to uh, the peninsula because he is a follower of the god Thor. And uh, it's described how he settles this area, how he builds a temple with a very detailed description of a temple and, and some uh, descriptions of rituals, uh, pagan rituals, which are very interesting. But also, we're also told of the other settlers that come into the area, and one of them is Björn, and uh, this nobleman from uh, from uh, Norway, whom to whom 
or who who settles the area just west of Sorolver. Then another family comes a bit further to the west to Eire. And uh, finally, there is a, uh, we're told of the people who settle Altafjörður. Geirríður, who is a woman who uh, comes to Altafjörður and uh, has a farm in the middle of uh, uh, a path uh, between the regions and her her house is open to everybody and there's always a free meal for anybody who passes through. Her son, Sorolver, who is, uh, is a former Viking and who uh, uh, duels to obtain his land. And uh, Sorolver's son, Arkel Gwadi, uh, who uh, becomes one of the main characters of the saga later on. So uh, what I... In the first 14, 13 or 14 chapters, we're told about these uh, these first two, one or two, three generations of uh, of the uh, these different settler families, and uh, then finally, what will turn out to be the main character of the uh, of the saga, Snorri Gwadi, is introduced, and after that, the saga becomes uh, even more interesting. Uh, with its blend of conflicts between chieftains, uh, supernatural uh, events, uh, lots of skaldic poetry and uh, love poetry, poetry about uh, battle. Uh, there's a story of adultery and then uh, these interesting paranormal occurrences that I'm sure we're going to talk about more. Fascinating, fascinating. Now, Erbigius Saga was written in the mid-13th century. Some refer to this period as the Stirlung era, denoting the powerful Stirlung family, and a time marked by conflicts of warring chieftains across Iceland. Dr. Tolinius, what exactly was going on in Iceland during the mid-13th century? Well, it's a long and complex story. So Iceland was settled by people mainly from Norway or from uh, places that had been settled by Norwegian and Danes in the British Isles. And uh, so the the links with Norway were always very important. The Norwegian king had a hand in converting Icelanders to Christianity. There were family links, there were trade links. And uh, and by the mid 12th century, uh, Iceland, uh, Christian Iceland, is part of the Archbishopric of uh, uh, of uh, Norway, with its uh, archiepiscopal seat in Trondheim, or near that also as it was called in those days. So Iceland is very linked to Norway, but it is nevertheless has a certain degree of independence, and it uh, developed its own way of governing itself. With uh, the chieftainships and and so on, what is happening in the from around twelve hundred and especially with it, it really becomes intense in the twelve twenties and onwards, is a progressive drawing in of Iceland into what the uh, into the uh, Norwegian monarchy, which is uh, reinforcing itself in the time, and this is a. Uh, with a trend that you can see all over Europe. Kings are becoming more powerful. They're organizing their states in a more effective way. And they want to rule over their people, giving them uh, law and so on. And 
this, what is happening in the 13th century in Iceland, it probably would have happened maybe two or three generations before if there had not been um, a long protracted civil war in Norway uh, throughout the second half of the 12th century. But by 1217, 1220, uh, the uh, Norwegian monarchy is reinforcing itself and the Norwegian kings are claiming authority over Icelanders. And um, one of the first to kind of uh, promote the cause of Norwegian kingship in Iceland is uh, Snorri Sturluson, or at least he promised to do so. He received great honors at the Norwegian court in the, around 1220. He was promoted a baron of the realm, or the equivalent of that, called the Lendur Madur. And he... Uh, he has promised the rulers of Norway to, uh, as it is said in one of these one of the sagas, to uh, make the Icelanders obey the Norwegian king. But this uh, does not it's not it does not seem to uh, manage to do that. Probably uh, there are several reasons for that. He engages in a long feud, intermittent feud, with uh, one of his nephews, Surtla Sigvaldson who again in uh, 1235 makes the same promise to uh, uh, the Norwegian king, who then uh, is, has, is the young king Haakon. And uh, that leads to a civil war, which uh, goes on uh, from 1235, 12, well, 1236, 1237, into uh, 1262, when, the, uh, when Icelanders swear allegiance to the Norwegian king and promise to pay him taxes and so on. And this civil war is part of uh, change in the power structure, or lead is kind of, the civil war is a symptom of a change which is going on in the power structure of uh, Iceland uh, at the time where uh, the king's authority is becoming more and more important. The king is acquiring the chieftainships. Uh, when Snorri Sturluson is killed in 1241, uh, he has disobeyed the king. He owns several chieftainships and he has uh, disobeyed the king by going to Iceland when the king had uh, forbidden him to do that. And uh, because of that, the king has, has him, uh, or he is killed by. Uh, the, uh, under the authority of the king, should we say, the king authorized the killing. and um, But the king claims ownership over the chieftaincies. And, and by 1250-51, the, uh, the king has, has uh, gained uh, ownership of several, many of a majority almost, of the chieftainships in Iceland, which means that the old chieftain families, their status in society is changing. It is becoming, uh, they are not at the, on the top of the, <laughs> they're not the biggest fish uh, in, in society anymore. There's the, uh, the king's authority is over them. And this is a, Quite a change, and even though it is gradual, it probably went. It probably uh, was painful for many, and th therefore we have this uh, this uh, great uh, amount of violence in society. But it also called for a readjustment of uh, the thinking in society. How the uh, the le the dominant class in Iceland thought of its position in society, and. Um, 
many people believe that uh, the author of Erbika Saga was Sturla Thordarsson, a nephew of Snorri Sturluson and uh, a known saga writer. We know that he wrote uh, part of the Sturlunga Saga compilation. We know that he wrote a saga of the first king of Iceland, uh, <clears throat> King Haukon Haukonsson. And I think if it is him or any contemporary, <clears throat> actually, Sturla was an active participant in the, uh, all the all the conflicts that took place during the Sturlung period. Uh, if it was him or a contemporary, it could have been his brother or, or anybody else, actually, uh, that wrote Erbik Asara, uh, it, he, my feeling is that he is projecting into the past, the uh, the period before and sur- around the conversion to Christianity, so two to three to four centuries into the past, the cons- and working from, of course, oral narratives of uh, what had been going on there, but weaving it into a plot where he's thinking about concerns of his time. And <clears throat> if you think of the plot of Erbika Sara, it is about when Snorri Gordi, the main character, comes into the saga. He um, he says he. It is said that he became a great chieftain, but he had to deal with uh, his uh, <clears throat> other chieftains in the area, who some were uh, more valiant than him, or, uh, or and others could make at least the same claim to authority as him. And one could say that this. This is, in a way, what I've called the narrative contract in Erbikasa. This is what the saga is going to be about, the conflicts between Snorri and the other chieftains and how Snorri progressively, through ruse, by luck, by through killing also, uh, gains the upper hand in uh, society. Uh, and But in this plot, I think, uh, or it's my hypothesis, uh, that uh, Sturtla Thordarsson is thinking about what is the place of the former chieftain families? He belongs to a great chieftain family, the Sturzungs. What will their place be in uh, the new society? And uh, that is how I interpret, par- uh, for example, the most famous of the ghost stories in uh, Erbike Sara, the stories of the wonders at Frodo. And we can go into that more in more detail if you want to. Yes, please, um, Dr. Telenius. Now, the paranormal activity and the, the wonders that you're referring to are, are very interesting. And, you know, obviously we've done uh, sort of every year on the podcast around the Halloween holiday in the United States, late October, we we tend to uh, have returning guest Dr. Armin Jakobsen to talk about um, paranormal activity on the podcast. But first of all, you know, what is what does it mean? Why, why might the author choose? choose to include paranormal activity in the saga when no doubt he was likely a, a Christian. Is that correct? Oh, he was most certainly a Christian. and uh, But of course, a Christian in the Middle Ages believed in paranormal things. and, uh, and, uh, and <clears throat> But they also, we can see the, the idea in several sagas. I don't remember if it's actually expressed in Erbiga saga, but it is expressed in many other sagas that the uh, conversion period is a period where the old wonders of uh, the pagan period are progressively uh, leaving society. So, uh, so uh, I think that 
they have these paranormal stories that uh, so many that you find throughout the saga corpus, but in exceptional density in uh, Erbika saga, I think they have a, a certain meaning. Uh, for the Christians of the 13th century for whom who are telling these stories and for whom these stories are being told. And I think this meaning has to do uh, with expressing, well, what Arman Jakobson calls the troll inside you. That is to say, the uh, what, uh, what cannot be said in society, but nevertheless uh, troubles society, is nevertheless what everybody is subconsciously thinking of and, and what uh, motivates people, but it cannot be said, you know, uh, less uh, things you don't want to admit, you know, uh, like jealousy, uh, desire, uh, hatred, uh, things like that. And I think that the representation of the paranormal in this projection into the past, uh, into the uh, semi-pagan past or this transitional period just before the conversion and during the conversion to Christianity is a way to talk about these forbidden things that are are nevertheless active in society. So, for example, female desire, which I think is a, one of these great themes in, in, in medieval literature in general, but especially in Erbigasa, uh, is makes trouble <laughs> in the in the saga, and so it's in part it is about the, the troublemaking of female desire, and you see that in the first uh, of the, the three major episodes of the um, uh, paranormal, para, uh, the three ma- first three major paranormal episodes in the saga, that of the rivalry between uh, Gerrider and uh, Katla over the young boy. And the uh, son of Sorbjörn, who is uh, who, who is ridden by by a, a witch and uh, kind of uh, loses his mind and his health because of that, and uh, that leads to a series of um, of uh, conflicts which uh, are graphically described and uh, very interesting with the help of uh, skaldic poetry. Uh, then you have uh, the story of the. Uh, Nasty old man, Sorolver, who uh, is in rivalry and conflict with his son and comes back as a ghost uh, or as a zombie to trouble his son and uh, and uh, in, in general make a nuisance of himself. And I think that uh, here the theme of the of rivalry, conflict between father and son is kind of being... Uh, being explored, and this is something you can, you see in um, well, uh, at least one can um, suspect that uh, there is a problem with paternity in this society, where uh, which is undergoing change. The chieftain families are losing their position, and uh, the they are losing their position compared to their fathers. So in a way, they could blame themselves for losing this position. And so kind of the image of the dead father as uh, somebody who, uh, as a kind of a force uh, urging you to to keep uh, the family's position in society and, uh, and to fight 
for it. And in this very violent, time, violent times, I think that the um, the figure of the nasty father, it's interesting. The uh, dead uh, fa- father as a revenant uh, is um, is uh, part of of that. Then there's the third and the most famous of the paranormal episodes in Erbikasa, which are the hauntings at Frodo, and it they they are brought about by female desire. It happens. Uh, I don't know how much your uh, readers know about this episode. Do you want me to to uh, give the the gist of it? Yes, that would be great. Okay, so Frodo is a place uh, a bit f- further away from uh, further out on the uh, north coast of the of the Snæfellsnes Peninsula, and it has. Uh, it it's the sister of Snorri Gwadi lives there with her husband and whom she has probably she has been having an affair with a, a neighbor and her her husband or her son is probably not the son of her husband but the the, uh, the son of the man with whom he she has been having this affair uh, the son by this time when the story this story I'm going to tell happened is in his early teenagers, and uh, but Suri Duri's mother is uh, characterized as someone who likes nice clothes and who, in in general, uh, takes what she wants. And uh, so that here you have the theme of female desire I mentioned earlier, illicit female desire. And um, then you have uh, then. Uh, that fall, uh, a sh- cargo ship comes from Dublin, and on it is a woman, a strange woman, uh, in her past her middle age, but nevertheless uh, an impressive woman called Sorguna, and she uh, has with her some beautiful objects, and these objects are uh, uh, wake the desire or suridur uh, the. The, uh, the woman who, the mistress of the farm of Frodo, wants these objects. Thorguna will not give it, them to her, <clears throat> but she's willing to spend the winter there. And uh, and uh, Suryur invites her to stay in their home for the winter, hoping that she will <clears throat> be able to lay her hands on the, acquire these objects in one way or another. Then there is a, a strange occurrence, uh, rain, blood rains over the farm, and Thorguna says, "This this is going to this is a uh, uh, an omen. I'm going to die." And uh, and calls the farmer and asks him to burn some of the objects that she has, and especially uh, bed dressings that uh, the uh, farmer's wife Suri had wanted so much, and that uh, Suri, that uh, Thorguna had not wanted to give her. So she makes two requests to the farmer, one that he burns these objects and the other that her body be, because she is a Christian and this is just a year after Iceland had been converted to Christianity. So there were no priests in the area. So she wants to be taken to Skaulholt, the future uh, episcopal seat of Southern Iceland and be buried there because she has an inkling that there are uh, priests there that can bury her uh, using the full Christian ritual. And uh, the uh, farmer 
accedes to her, her request, uh, Thorgana dies, her body is taken to to Skalhalt, all kinds of interesting uh, paranormal things happen on the way. Thorgana appears naked at one point in uh, on the way to get to and goes into the kitchen and makes food for the men who are transporting her body and then she's dead again so she she is the she's one of the revenants but then but uh, the other promise she asked the uh, asked uh, the farmer to make which was to burn the bed dressings he does not uh, uh, well he's about to do that when his wife comes lays his, her hand arms around his neck and uh, asks him uh, not to do that. So she takes these bed dressings, and uh, when the um, uh, when the men have returned from taking Thorgunna's body uh, to Skalholt, uh, suddenly these uh, a series of um, of paranormal events start to happen. So it begins with uh, the moon of destiny that goes that appears inside the great hall and goes counterclockwise uh, around the uh, uh, around the walls of the hall and uh, people start falling ill first the shepherd and uh, the, the when they, the the people die they come back as revenants so there's a first a series of six deaths and they all, all come back as revenants and for the people who are still alive things start to become really uncomfortable. Then there is no, then there is a, a second uh, paranormal uh, event, a seal's head comes out of the hearth and it rises as it is being struck and, and until Kartan, the son, the uh, illegitimate, the son of the, uh, uh, of the farmer's wife of Sudir, and who is actually not the son of the farmer, though he everybody says he is, uh, he uh, he is the only one who can takes a sledgehammer and and pounds the seal's head back into the ground, and then after that his father or his uh, nominal father and five other men uh, go out to 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 get fish fish that is dried fish that has been stored in one of the islands and uh, their boat is capsized on the way back and they all drown and when their funeral uh, feast or their wake is called to and people are invited uh, they come to the funeral and uh, so you are uh, you have uh, these people who have been buried the revenants who have been buried and the revenants who have been drowned, six each who sit around the uh, long fire and uh, it makes things uh, terribly uncomfortable for the people who are still alive. Then there is a third apparition, which is a seal's uh, uh, noise has been heard from the fish, where the, the, the place where the fish is, dried fish is kept for the winter. And a, a huge tail, an ox tail, <clears throat> appears, uh, and uh, people try to pull it out, but it is stronger than they. And then it slithers into the the the, the pile of stockfish. And uh, when people open up the the storage place, they find that all the fish has been eaten. And then six people, uh, a new plague, is laid on the or is brought to the. Uh, 
or a new plague uh, plagues the, the people of the farm, and another six people die. And finally, the uh, the uh, mistress of the house falls ill, and then um, Kartan decides to send uh, or goes himself or sends somebody to ask his uncle, Snorri the chieftain, the main character of the saga, for advice. And upon hearing this, Snorri immediately sends one of his sons and a priest who had just recently arrived in the uh, in the area, and uh, they do three things to put an end to the wonders of Frodo. First is they take the bed dressings that had been, was the cause of everything, and they burn it. So that would be, in a way, the the folkloristic or the fairy tale way to end the uh, to end the curse or to to uh, neutralize the curse on uh, on the farm and that's done and then they do the religious thing which is to uh, uh, the priest goes around confesses the people who are alive still alive uh, sprinkles holy water over everything says mass and so on so in a way uh, a purificatory rite which uh, ritual which uh, has, uh, is in accordance with uh, Christian thinking. But then there's a third thing, which is really unique in medieval literature, which is that the, uh, the, the chieftain's son and uh, the chieftain's nephew hold court over the revenants, and they sentence them all to leave. And the, each of them says something strange upon leaving, but they... they uh, the the force of the law uh, uh, makes them leave, and I I thought that this was very interesting. That first of all, that this is so unique, not only in Icelandic medieval literature but in medieval literature in general, uh, that to use a court of law to rid one rid a farm of uh, revenants, and. Um, and also thinking of uh, the uh, the fact that it's a collaborative effort between, on the one hand, the priest, and on the other hand, the 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 men who uphold the law. I thought that, and I put this in uh, the context of what is going on in Iceland, because there are several things going on in Icelandic politics which are really interesting during this period uh, between twelve thirty and twelve seventy, which is the the broader kind of uh, time span in which we can reasonably say that's, that Erbiga uh, Saga was composed is that there is a conflict between the church and the, uh, and the chieftains over uh, jurisdiction. It's called the privilegium fori, is uh, something that the church, uh, a principle that the church upholds uh, with great force in <clears throat> all over Europe at the time, but in Iceland, especially uh, uh, in the first years of the 13th century, that canon law, that uh, that clerics only, <clears throat> people who have, uh, uh, yes, uh, some kind of, entered some kind of holy orders, <clears throat> are not, uh, do not, uh, uh, the people who, lawyers or Lay the law, the the law of uh, of lay people does not uh, apply to them, 
And this leads to a lot of conflicts in early 13th century Iceland. But I think that when you think of uh, uh, the context in the t- around 1250, uh, why not interpret this story of paranormal, this extraordinary story of uh, uh, paranormal events as a way of thinking about the the separate but uh, uh, roles of, on the one hand, the church, and on the other, the chieftains in uh, Icelandic uh, society at the time and in society in general. On the one hand, the people in charge of ritual, of the sacred, that's the, the church, but the people in charge of the law, uh, those are... Uh, those are the chieftains. And to come back to my point uh, earlier in the podcast about uh, uh, what that I read Erbig as a way of thinking of that the chieftain families are thinking about uh, their new role in a society which has been taken over by uh, the king. So uh, when we think about the context of the 1250s, 60s, 70s, where the Icelandic chieftains have lost their chieftainships in a way, the king has taken them over. Well, one could Im- imagine that what the author of Erbikasa is thinking about is the new role of the chieftains, which is to be the uh, the people who uphold the law in society, who maintain the law. And this is actually what Sturla uh, Thordarsson and many of the the uh, descendants of the chieftain families become in the new society where uh, under Norwegian rule, they become specialists of law. They apply the law. They are uh, specialists of law. And, and Sturla and his brother Olavur, who both have been uh, named as possible authors of Erbiga, became law speakers or lawmen. And uh, this was their role in uh, society or part of their role in society. So Erbiga is a beautiful, uh, I don't don't want to reduce Erbiga to this message, but I think this is one of the things that the author is uh, wondering about and uh, has an impact on how he tells his story. Uh, but he's also, of course, uh, telling the story to entertain his audience and uh, bring together things he knows, things he might have heard about the past and uh, composing this uh, wonderful work of art. So I haven't insisted no, uh, enough on that in this podcast, but Erbika is it's a complex piece of literature, but it is probably one of the most intricate and interesting and in its own special way, beautiful uh, uh, examples of Icelandic uh, or sagas of Icelanders. Indeed. Well, Dr. Tolinius, you've done a great deal of work on Erbigia Saga, and I've included a link to your academia.edu page in the description oh, thank you. of this episode. How did you become fascinated with this particular saga? Of course, I know your work isn't limited strictly to it. Well, I think it was, I'm, I'm really interested in structure, narrative structures and so on. And so, uh, and uh, also I'm interested in, um, kind of the deeper meanings or what goes on in the subtext, one could say, of, uh, of uh, literary works. And um, 
so when I started thinking about the structure of the saga and, and linking it to what these paranormal events could possibly mean for a 13th century audience, I, I, it started to unravel. So I think that the structure, which has, uh, so my theory about the structure of Erbika Saga, which has been uh, kind of widely, well, not widely, but discussed by uh, several generations of scholars throughout the, throughout the years, and is uh, is a in a way a problem has been a problem for scholars who don't it does not uh, the kind of general structures of feud counter feud and counter revenge counter revenge and so on uh, that you can see in so many of the sagas do not ex- uh, apply exactly and what is especially interesting about Erbigasa is that even there, though there is this main character Snorri the saga leaves him for a while. So in a way, it has several plot lines that uh, interlace, uh, meander, and so on. And, and of course, this is an aspect of medieval aesthetics. You see this very much in the 13th century uh, romance literature. But I think that this, uh, this particular meandering of the plot or this particular structure we see in Erbikasa has to do with <clears throat> what I mentioned earlier, which is the amount of things that are unsayable in this society, but nevertheless motivate the actors, motivate the people, and uh, uh, are part of what they think about or subconsciously are wondering about when when uh, they are confronted with this extremely violent society, with, in, with this society that is going through massive upheaval, which is a society of the mid-13th century Iceland. And... Um, I think that the plot meanders like this and goes from Snorri to other characters because it is uh, trying to express something which the author probably is not conscious about, but which has to do with the with the pressure of being uh, of having to maintain one's position in society despite all the co- the competition you have with other people and despite all the disruptive. Uh, elements in society, which are figured, I think, or uh, symbolized, I think, by desire, uh, vanity, and especially female desire, which uh, I think is uh, one of the big motifs in Icelandic society. And and it's interesting that the plot starts to meander, as I say, or to become, or the structure starts to become complex with the the first narrative after Snorri has been introduced, is about uh, about uh, female competition for a young man, oh, uh, competition between elderly females for a young man and their uh, desire for him. I think that um, yeah, that is how I would explain the structure of uh, Erbikasa. But there are very many different aspects of the structure which fascinate me. For uh, I'm actually now working on uh, how the author structures the geography in the, the saga. It's, it's a one, you just were visiting the area. It's wonderful to travel around the northern part of Snipersnes and just think about the saga and how it carefully situates the events in, uh, in, the, in the landscape. And uh, I think that the author 
organizes his narrative in such a way as to well, the the female is to the east, uh, or the disruptive females are to the east. The disruptive males are to the west. The center is Helgafet, and uh, that's where the the authentic power struggles uh, take place. I think that uh, many of the uh, themes I detect in the sagas uh, can are organized and uh, uh, systematized in the way the author situates his episodes uh, thematically in the different parts of the uh, of the landscape around Helgafet. Indeed. Well, Dr. Telenius, this has been a real treat having you back on the podcast to explore the fascinating Erbigia saga. No doubt a lot of our listeners who are unfamiliar with this work will go out and buy an English translation of it. Uh, for those prepared to read this saga for the first time, uh, what are some parting thoughts you would leave with them as they prepare to dive into this great work? Well, just go with the flow, one could say. Don't it's it's a it's not a normal saga. You don't. It's a bit. Uh, there's a lot of uh, material in it. It seems very disparate. Uh, don't uh, don't uh, think that you will catch it. It's not like a detective novel or an adventure story. It's a kind of a panorama of what is going on in in uh, Icelandic society, especially during the period immediately preceding. The conversion to Christianity has got a lot of strange events. Just let yourself be submerged by the kind of strangeness of the saga and read it again and again until it starts to make sense. Uh, it starts to make, you start to make sense of it. And um, don't necessarily believe all the things I've told you about it. These are just my interpretations of it. You will be served by a very good translation by my colleague, uh, Professor at Cambridge, Judy Quinn in the Penguin edition, and uh, and just enjoy and give yourself time. And if you have the possibility of going to the northern part of Snæfellsnes in Iceland and and visit the places where it takes where the saga events are, where the saga is staged, that will even add to your pleasure of reading this wonderful saga. I think it's uh, uh, well. I have so many favorite sagas, but I, I think it's among the the five, six great, great works of art that the saga literature gave to humanity. Mm. Dr. Torfi Telenius, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Noah, and uh, I love to talk about the sagas. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and leave us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice. Join us right here again for another episode. Mm -hmm.